The scripture reading is from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 to 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King, Jer after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elsa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of, Gabal, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. For that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers and all the grandfathers. I am both a father and a grandfather. Um, I'm proud to be grandfather to JJ and MJ, uh, two uh, very active boys, um, and we thank God for them. Uh, thank you once again to David for the opportunity to minister from God's word uh, this morning. Thank God for friends, and thank God for friends of friends. Uh, that's often how we end up uh, uh, getting to, to know each other. The, the title for my sermon is uh, Present But Temporary Home, uh, Lessons from the Exiles of Judah. And we read uh, from Jeremiah 29 uh, this morning. Home sweet home. Home is where the heart is. Um, that's one of the most famous American expressions uh, written uh, maybe a century or so ago uh, by John Howard. But what if, what if you must leave your home and never to return? Or you must leave your home and there's no guarantee that you will return. What if you find yourself far, far away from home? Not just for a day, not just for a month, but 
what about for two generations? What if you find yourself far from home? As we read our text for this morning, in 597 AD, the Israelites of Judah found themselves very far away from home, some 1,600 kilometers away in Babylon. And as we read in, in Jeremiah and other passages of scripture, their city was conquered and it was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. And when you read in chapter 20, uh, 52, verse 28, for example, we're told more than 3,000 people were carried into captivity in Babylon. And among them were Jehoiakim and his household, some priests and some prophets. You would have expected that uh, priests and prophets would have been spared from the captivity. And the question is, how can we live anywhere in the world, and particularly as the people of God, in the midst of a culture and society which may dismiss us or despise us or marginalize us, as was the case with the exiles of Judah who found themselves stuck in Babylon? And that's the question these exiles of Judah faced then. They were asking that question. But that's also the question before us today. How then shall we live in this world that is not our present, but our temporary home? As we read the text, the reaction of the exiles varied between, on one hand, utter pessimism, a total despair for those who felt this is it, this is the end of us. There is absolutely no hope. We might as well die in our graves. And that's what they thought in Ezekiel chapter 37. And on the other hand, optimism of those who thought it would be over pretty soon. A few months and the exiles will be back home. People like the uh, false prophets, uh, prophet, uh, prophet like Prophet Hananiah, who Jeremiah had to, to talk to, to rebuke pretty much in Jeremiah 28. But neither false pessimism nor false optimism was the right answer. In some ways, they were asking the wrong question. The real question was, where, where is the Lord? Where is God? Where is the God of our history? Where is the God of the covenant? Where is the God whom we trust? Does God have a word for us in this situation? And if God has a word, well, then you need a prophet. And the prophet at that time uh, in, uh, in Jerusalem was Jeremiah. But the problem was that the exiles was 1,600 kilometers, 1,000 miles away in Babylon. And so how, how do you get the word of the Lord to them? Well, Jeremiah sent them a letter. And that's the letter we have in the text of Jeremiah 29, verse 1 to 14 this morning. And the first thing this letter brought to the exiles was a, a surprising new perspective. 
And, and we, all, we all need new perspectives because often we are stuck in just one perspective. We see things in one way and often we need help to see things from different perspectives. And so the, the first thing this letter brought to the exiles was a surprising new perspective to their situation. And we read that in verses four to six. And here's the question. Who was responsible for this, this, this captivity and all? Who was responsible? Notice the different answers given in verse 1 and then what God says in verses 4 to 7. In verse 1, who is responsible? This text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then you read verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So who had done it, we might ask? The answer is both. Both were true, but different perspectives on the same historical event. At the level of human history, yes, the armies of Babylon, the powers of Nebuchadnezzar did it. And yet at the level of God history, what the prophet sees through the eyes of faith in and behind all this is in fact the hand of God the God of his people. Jeremiah says, yes, Israel has been defeated, but the Lord God of Israel is still on the throne. He is in control of world events. And I think it's always difficult to believe in God's sovereignty in world affairs when you are up close and caught up in the midst of it. Uh, I think it's the danger of a single story uh, perhaps the, the danger of only reading the newspaper and social media and you allow that to shape your narrative without even touching the Bible. So what does the sovereign Lord say through his prophet Jeremiah? He says to them, settle down where you are. You, you're not going to be there for two months, for two years, no you're going to be there for two generations, for 70 years. A, an impossible task to believe and a very difficult message for the exiles to accept. God says through Jeremiah, be where you are with me. I am there with you. Jeremiah was not telling them that this was their permanent home, but this was their present home. And that is where God would be with them at that time. I think it's important to always remind ourselves that this world is not our permanent home, but our present home. Uh, often we behave as though it is permanent. It is not. Our present home is temporary, but there is a home that is permanent and eternal. Uh, someone who perhaps had this letter read was Daniel and his three friends. Uh, remember, they were among the first to be taken into exile when they were boys. 
In Daniel chapter 1, you see Daniel and his friends doing exactly what Jeremiah said the exiles should do. Probably every sermon that you have heard on Daniel emphasizes Daniel's refusal to eat the meat that was offered to idols. And we are all told to be like Daniel and his three friends. But what is often not said is how Daniel and the rest of the exiles, in fact, accepted the enculturation program of being where they were in Babylon. They accepted Babylonian names and language and education, uh, jobs and, and, and culture in the civil service and government, the very government that had enslaved them. So there's an amazing degree by which they accepted and settled in that context. And yet, as we read in Daniel, they retained their faith and their distinctives. They accepted Babylon as their present but temporary home. I think there's something special about a, a, a perspective that calls on God's people to, to remain faithful to their covenant God and to recognize that he is with them even in the most horrendous circumstances. For the exiles of Judah, this was a surprising, unwelcome, but ultimately a hope-filled perspective. And as Christians, I think we have a lot to reflect on regarding the, the gospel and culture uh, conversation. Uh, here we are uh, in, the, in the city that could quite easily be labeled as the mecca of culture. What does it mean to be an authentic Christian in this context? What, for me, what does it mean to be an African Christian? What does it mean to be a, 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 an African-American Christian? What does it mean to be a Chinese-American Christian? Where have I drawn the line between what you could call positive enculturation and giving covenant loyalty to my culture and even to my ancestors? So the first thing this letter brought to the exiles was a surprising new perspective to their captivity. And the second was to give them a new mission. I, I honestly pity the person who had to read this letter, especially when it came to verse seven. Uh, verse seven says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Can you imagine the angry reaction uh, to this letter? This is not what it should say. Yes, it should say what we read in Psalm 122, for example. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, yes. May they be secure who love you, yes. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but not pray for the peace of Babylon. Impossible. Why should I do that? 
We know what we want for Babylon. Perhaps what we want for Babylon uh, is Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That is what we want for Babylon. We want blood. We want revenge. Don't ask us to pray for these people after everything they have done to us. And so Jeremiah calls them to a surprising, shocking, unwelcome reaffirmation of their original mandate, which was to be a blessing to the nations. You know what God called you to do, to be a people with a mission to the nations. And did God say, pray only for the nations that like you or pray for those who are not your enemies? No, says Jeremiah. Seek their welfare instead. Pray for them. Seek for their shalom. Seek for their well-being. And remember, this is 500 years or more before the Lord Jesus said it. This is as close as you would get in the Old Testament to saying, love your enemies. Jeremiah could have pointed them to their scriptures. Leviticus 19, verse 18, for example, you must love your neighbors as yourself. But what is often not noticed is the other end of, chap of the chapter in verse 34. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Equality of all ethnic groups before the Lord is right there in the Torah, in the law of Moses. You shall love them as yourself. And the same Hebrew phrase is used in two other places in the Old Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus 19.34, you shall treat the foreigner who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. And it's as though Jeremiah is calling them back to this, reminding them that this is how the Abrahamic mandate is to be fulfilled. God blessed you so that you can be a blessing and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, even the Babylonians. Once again, I wonder if this is something that Daniel took to heart. We know that Daniel was a man of prayer. He prayed three times a day. I wonder who was at the top of Daniel's prayer list. I have a sneaking suspicion that perhaps it was King Nebuchadnezzar. What we know is that in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, and Daniel comes in, and he knows that this dream is about him, and he recognizes that the judgment of God is coming on King Nebuchadnezzar. What do you imagine was Daniel's response? What could have been your response? He is a man who has lived all his life under this ruthless king. 
who has destroyed his city, who has destroyed his temple and killed thousands of his people and drove him and his friends as boys to Babylon and forced him to live there all his life. And now he hears this regime, this king, this empire is about to collapse. Wouldn't Daniel be saying, yes, yes, praise the Lord, it's about time. I have lived long enough to see the judgment of God upon my enemies. That would be understandable, don't you think? But that was not Daniel's response. Daniel was so upset when he understood what the dream meant that he couldn't even speak. And the king had to persuade him to speak. And listen to his opening words when he spoke to the king. Oh, king, I wish this dream was for your enemies and not you. But it is for you. And you need to realize that you and your city stand under God's judgment. Then he goes on with this marvelous uh, civil servant language. Remember, Daniel was not a prophet. He was a civil servant. He was an administrator. And so he goes on and he says, Be pleased, O king, to accept my advice. And what advice does Daniel give to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, verse 27? Therefore, O king, let my counsel be accepted to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening to your prosperity. Daniel offers him a way out of judgment by doing justice and stopping his oppression. He says, if you do this, maybe God will suspend his judgment upon you. Daniel, it seems, had learned to love King Nebuchadnezzar. He had come to some degree of affection for this man and did not want to see him suffering under the destructive judgment of God. And so we have to ask the question, why? What was happening to Daniel? I imagine that it was at least in part that Daniel was praying for Nebuchadnezzar. It's terribly hard, isn't it, to hurt someone that you're praying for. The more you pray for them, the less you want to see them hurt or punished or suffer. And so Jeremiah gives to these exiles this mission really to, to turn their mourning into mission, to pray for the Babylonian Empire. And this echoes the words of Jesus that we know so well. Pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who enslave you. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul urges Christians to pray for kings and governors, secular pagan governors of the Roman Empire. It's part of our mission to be a blessing where we are. Even if where we are is a place we radically, radically dislike and wish to see changed. We're called upon 
to both pray for God's blessing, but also for us to be a blessing. You pray for God's blessing, but you also pray that you are a blessing yourself. Well, let's not imagine that Jeremiah was naive when he said, settle down, pray, and be a blessing. Well, Jeremiah knew perfectly well that Babylon stood under the judgment of God for its wickedness. In fact, in the very next diplomatic post bag, uh, Jeremiah sent chapters 50 and chapter 51. And if you read them, it is a comprehensive declaration of God's judgment on Babylon, the, the very nation that God had used as an agent of his judgment on Israel. Babylon stood under God's judgment, and that judgment would come. But in the meantime, says Jeremiah, seek their welfare, pray for them, be a blessing to them, and be a witness to the Babylonians. And then thirdly, a surprising new hope in verses 10 to 14. We said in the beginning that Israel was in exile because of the sovereign purpose of God. What I didn't highlight then was why. Why were they in Babylon? And the answer was that God was acting in judgment against them for their habitual, persistent, generational sin and rebellion against God. This is one of the ways in which the history of the Old Testament Israel stands as a warning, as a warning to God's people in every era, in every generation, that ultimately God's judgment begins with his own people. Judgment begins in the house of God. God had threatened to drive them out of their land if they broke the covenant, and they did. And so he drove them out of their land into Babylon. When this happened, so many of them thought this was the end. We are done, we are going to die here. And so there's this great surprise to hear from Jeremiah that this was not the end, that there was hope even in the midst of judgment, that even in the midst of judgment, God was not done with them yet. But it would not be immediate. Those opening words of verse 10 must have come as a real downer initially as they listened to the letter. 70 years, why not two months? Well, 70 years, that's, that's a long time, especially when you're facing it up front, 70 years. But God says, your freedom will come, and in the future, in the future, Babylon's time will come as it does for every human empire and power. Every evil empire will come and rise they flourish, they dominate, and they wither, and they implode, and they pass away. And that is a message we need to hear as much in our present world order as in all the empires of the past. We should know better how it will all end. Because the Bible tells us how it will all end. 
And it is in the midst of the, the reality of God's judgment of the nations of the world and God's judgment of his own people that we should hear the wonderful promise of verse 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So while the exiles needed to embrace their present circumstances, they were being challenged to have an eye to the future. They were being challenged not only to listen to the newspaper and the social media that tells them, tells them how hard it's going to be. Well, they also needed to read God's word, to hear what God had to say about it. An absolute confidence in God's overarching plan and promises was the very thing that would sustain them. Keeping your eyes raised up instead of just looking down. Notice that the blessing Jeremiah talks about is placed firmly in the future. Only after 70 years have passed can Judah expect to return to their land in line with God's promises. Chapter 25, verse 11. And as 21st century exiles, we may also have to clock up our 70 years, our three score years and 10, before we finally head home. Uh, for many, it's not that much, but for others, who knows? He has numbered our days, but when our number is up, we will be with the Lord forever. That's what the Bible says. God has a plan. There is one great plan that spans the millennia. But the realization of that plan involves tiny personal details, as well as the rise and fall of nations. And for most of us, we are watching this unfold, aren't we? His plan for his people involves future blessing. And because his promises are reliable, we enjoy great hope. Why we keep our eyes raised high. The goal of God's plan is truly wonderful, but the path to it may prove painful. We even read this in First Peter chapter 2. We are assured, however, that the Lord has plotted the course of each one of us. All the twists and turns are known to him. They're not a surprise. He uses them for his purpose, and the destination is known. And Romans 8:28 is the New Testament equivalent of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, don't you think? In Romans 8, Paul is stressing how individual Christians are part of God's great purpose. And that purpose will mean glorification. That's how it's going to end for us. The golden chain linking predestination and calling and justification and glorification is unbreakable. It is that glory that constitutes the good which all things are heading towards. It is this future and hope that are so vital against the backdrop of our present sufferings and the corresponding groanings, as we read in Romans chapter 8. 
But do we ever notice, in conclusion, the context of this promise in verse 11? This is a precious word, but it is given as a surprising word for people who were standing at that point under God's judgment. In the midst of history, in the midst of circumstances that are unwelcome, full of sin and suffering and oppression, God is in control and he brings hope. What should be the response to the promise in verse 11? Well, read on, verse 12 and verse 14. Turning back to the Lord, seeking him with all our heart, with genuine repentance, with obedience, with seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And so it is this time again with Daniel himself. In chapter 9, Daniel tells us when he knew the Babylonian time was coming to the end, reading the prophecies of Jeremiah's promise of verse 11, what does Daniel and his friends do? Well, he fell to confession to the God of his people, the sin of his people, asking for God's mercy and restoration. Heal them, Lord, and bring them back. It is to a confessing, repenting, contrite people that God's promise in verse 11 should be heard and understood. And here is the word which turns victims, uh, people who are in bondage, turns them into visionaries. Because this enables these Israelites to look up and to look forward, not with a quick fix solution. In fact, all those who had the letter read at the beginning were not going to be there to see the fulfillment of the promise made here. But they knew that their childrenhood or their children's childrenhood, because God is faithful. God was the God of long term hope. He would be faithful to his promise. God would bring his people back. God's plan and God's purpose for the blessing of the world through the people of Abraham would continue. And we know how the story did continue with the return from exile and the establishment of God's people and the ultimate coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and the expansion of that message of hope to all the nations of the earth, from Jerusalem to the ends of the world. And that is the surprising hope, the surprising hope in the context of Jeremiah. 29. So a new perspective. God is on the throne and it brings a surprising new hope. And here's a word that turns mourners and refugees and victims into resident missionaries. A word of hope and promise that God will never, never abandon us. For whatever we go, God is with us. And that's his promise. And this is a word of hope for every generation because in some sense, all of us are displaced persons, no matter where we live, no matter our circumstances. We are all pilgrims on a journey 
longing for a true home. And in the book of Hebrews, it says, for here we have no lasting city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. And so wherever you go, wherever you find yourself, whatever happens to you, you are assured of God's presence with you at home, away from home, in life, in death, beyond death, God is with us because he has promised us so. Let me pray for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to look up and to look forward. We pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see that indeed you are with us wherever we are. That, Lord, in our present but temporary home, we are assured of your presence with us. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.